my mind, the, yeah. the stoppers, like, you, the cost is prohibitive, but... They'll let him do whatever he wants. Yeah. I mean, it's, That's yeah. why he's named Charles Foster Kane. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> how, how what's the line between David Fitcher and Charles Foster Kane? Well, I was going to say how or many Orson Wells. Yeah. How many times no, do you think Charles Foster Kane? How many times <laughs> How many times do you think we're going to say Mank on this episode? None because I haven't seen it. Uh, well, yeah, I'm me neither. I'll be saying Mank a lot. You keep then. up the Mank line. I'll keep good, up the Mank. Good, good on you. Oh, we'll, we'll make sure Herman Mankiewicz is represented at this table because it is not Orson Welles' baby. Greg Toland is who gets a love. Yeah. yeah the cinematographer. That's. I mean, come yeah, on. That's, I'm a big that, Joseph Cotton guy. I do Cotton, like Joe Cotton. Dude. Man. Leland is so funny. Like they should have fired their costumer, though, and makeup artist. Uh, really? Yeah, well, <laughs> the, I think I think for Joseph's. Uh, is not so good. I think. I think. Uh, Orson, I think Wells is good. I, well, I think older, good. the oldest version. Yeah, I think middle-aged Kane is good. Mm-hmm. I think the oldest version, where he's the baldest, it's a little looks rough. Yeah, and they don't sound old, which also takes away. That's fair. yeah. They did. Yeah, well, that's a voice thing. It's hard yeah. to imitate. Yeah, yeah, you know. I thought Susan's are her the the makeup bags mm-hmm. that they give her are kind of funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know. Sometimes it's working. Sometimes it's not. But I. Th- Part of the magic of Kane for me, though, is like we're 80 years out from it. So when the artifice shines through, it's like fun. Yeah. And I, there's something handmade and craftsmanly about matte paintings and miniatures that just, I'm sorry, is not there. And even in even in the best CGI, there's something there's something lacking. No disrespect to those animators who work very hard. Tactile. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, there's a uh, weight, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, close, the closest CGI comes to having this is like when you watch Jurassic Park or T2 and you go, holy shit, that's 30 years old and it still looks incredible. Yeah. I guess that's as close as you get to it. And yeah. making some stuff from The Matrix too. Um, some of those, you know, kind of seminal uses of CGI. But you watch something like Kane and you just kind of, even when you can see the artifice of the fake makeup, you're like, man, it's cool that we were still pretty good at makeup this early in the history of movies. Yeah, I mean, obviously we've gotten better, but it's really impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, they all look better than uh, Adam Driver and Ferrari, though. So there's that. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, hello everybody, and welcome again to the Good and Trash Genre Cast. We gather around a table and we discuss makeup in the movies or the films you won't normally ordinarily trash makeup cast discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a TikTok already. Uh, the films you wouldn't ordinarily discuss in film space course. However, it's January, and that means we have to do our palette cleansing from the year past. Pellet? To the uh, year coming. Peloton cleanser. You just malfunctioned hard. I know. That's why I was worried. Trying to upgrade to the new version. As soon as you cut in, as soon as you cut in and cut in and cut him off, I was like, "Next, I'm going to shut up now." Apparently, famous last words. 2024, the year we give up. Anyway, we don't normally talk about these films in film space course unless you're doing anti trash, in which you are doing the films you'll do in a film space course. This week, this month's marathon is the uh, BFI Sight and Sound Top 250, Tops 1, 2, 3, and 4. We did four last week, which is Tokyo Story. We're doing three this week, which is Orson Welles, uh, Mankiewicz, and Greg Tolan's Citizen Kane, with help from Joe Cotton. Who? Uh, wow. Um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And we are uh, going to be doing this thing in an analysis kind of fashion, not a review kind of fashion. If you have not seen this 80-year-old film, if you do not know what the bobsled is, we will be revealing that at the end of the show. The one we- the Jamaicans ran? 
<laughs> I have absolutely he, no response to that. His grasp on sanity is so tenuous this week. But Don't yeah. mess with him. <laughs> I, 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 there's an edge, and I'm standing on it, and I will take you with me. <laughs> when do you start your governor bid? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to watch it all unfold. This is, yeah, madness. As a bystander. Yep. I'm trying to tell these people when the spoilers are going to happen. The spoilers will happen after the synopsis, after the thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, after expanding the syllabus in which we might have thematic spoilers, but not actual plot spoilers. And then we play music and that's when the spoilers happen. So now they know. Now you can talk, Arthur. You can give the synopsis. Give me a minute. <laughs> I wasn't prepared. I know. Yeah, yeah. I'll... You were too busy trying to, yeah, cook my grits over here. You're over. You're overcooking my grits. You coach. are overcooking my grits, man. You're burning my biscuits at this point. Breakfast is just kiss already. You two, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> this show will go so much faster. Following the death of media and cultural juggernaut Charles Foster Kane, a reporter seeks to understand the man behind the legend by deciphering his last words. Rosebud. And already CinemaSins is freaking out because they're saying, wait a second, nobody was in the room when he said Rosebud. <laughs> the nurse was very close. The, 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 the butler, uh, Mario. Yeah. The, I, the Italian butler. See, and this is why we don't abide by CinemaSins. No. Because if you just get on the movie's wavelength, just accept it. Yeah. <laughs> accept the premise. And if you stop the movie at uh, 35 minutes and 33 seconds, you'll notice that the prosthesis of Charles Foster Kane's nose is slightly off. <laughs> Neat. In the next edit, <laughs> who do you think will listen? This is a very specific episode. You know, is it, who do you think is going to listen to this one? Oh, no one. Well, I mean, uh, you know, our usual suspects, I'm sure. I, I'm, that's what I'm wondering, though. How many the of our Cubans, usual listeners? The Taylors. I don't know. Boom. That, that's maybe? true. Yeah. I don't know. My nieces who listen, I can't imagine are going to listen to this one. Probably about 20 something people, 30 something people. We'll yeah. see. Who knows? We might find a weird way in the algorithm because I'm sure Citizen Kane gets searched quite a bit. I'm wondering. It's I wonder a, how many podcasts are out there about Citizen Kane. Though, so many. Right? I mean, that's the thing is like if the algorithm does something weird. I mean, Unspooled's you know obviously done it. I'm sure. sure. Yeah. Next Best Picture's done it. I'm blink. Man, I you must remember this. Now. They should do a Wells Marathon. That'd be fun. <laughs> oh. Holy shit, that would be cool. I would be down for a Wells Marathon. Um, down the well. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, this whole marathon is sort of an interesting exercise for us, right? We're taking very discussed films. Disgusting films. D disgusting films. Is that what you said? said? No, no, very. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not at all. Is this film disgusting? It, in some ways. You know, if you well, think about it. fetishizes Charles Foster King. Yeah. <laughs> it hates him, though, right? It fetishizes it, it the rich it, corporate overlords. I mean, I don't think if so. If you get... <laughs> This is like the Ur text, right? Like you, the problem with Wolf of Wall Street goes all the way back to Citizen Kane. I'm sure in Orson 1941, was so in love there was some, with William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, idolized yeah. him. Posters on his wall wanted to be him. People came out of 1941 matinees of this movie and thought, "Man, I should be a newspaper man. I should be a rich. What if I wish a bank had raised me? If only a bank had raised me, I I too would be a titan of industry. Uh, if any listeners uh, work for Hearst Media in the uh, local area, then uh, we love the Hearst Foundation Legacy Group. What something? <laughs> it's weird to think that they're still like an entity. Yeah, it is. Yeah. As as like much a blow as this movie delivered to like the cultural legacy of of Hearst. It, it is interesting that they, they do endure. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Could a movie be this successful? I, I guess we'll ask that maybe in my class that I'm, I've sort of cooked up. 
When did you first come to Citizen Kane? I literally just saw it for the first time this, uh, this year, like two or three, or I guess last year now. Uh, but yeah, like two or three months ago in prep for The Killer, because I was going to be on Caleb Masters um, mm, yeah. uh, cinematic schematic discussion of David Fincher's The Killer. Yeah, so yeah. I went through the Fincher filmography. And when I got to Mank, I was like, well, I can't I can't watch Mank if I haven't seen Kane. So I did both. And so that was my first time watch. But obviously, I have been you know, watching movies in the shadow of Citizen Kane for about as long as I've been seriously considering film because it looms so large. I mean, obviously it was on the site and sound. It was number one on the site and sound list from like what, 62 to 2012. I mean, so for 50 years, um, it was regarded to be the best we'd ever done as a, as a human movie making populace. This is as good as it gets. I think for a lot of people, especially stateside, it's still the greatest movie of all time. I, I would assume uh, the certain generations. Yeah. I guess it's a big deal. The argument that I would make for it, and, and that's maybe what we should do in review, because obviously, like, I'm sure all three of us think Kane is a competent and well made film. Dogwater. No. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, when did you first come to it? So oh, I was, I was probably 12 or 13, probably. You were there when it came out in theaters, right? I was not. Yeah, he was selling pa- he was selling papes for Hearst, <laughs> and a kid from you know the studio said, "Hey, extra, should- extra, read all about it. New film, skew as Hearst." <laughs> I was in the French Foreign Legion. I missed it. <laughs> so you, I'm surprised how early you got to it, though. Mm-hmm. Like, a 12, was it like a it repertory like screening or on no, TV? No, I, I think I bought it on. I bought it on VHS. <laughs> no, of course I, uh, you did. That's <laughs> I did. awesome. I still had the tape. What I think. a weird twelve year old. <laughs> well, I was getting into movies. Sure, sure, and uh, just realized. And, and how this much, is the movie you get into. It's, I mean, it's one of them. I was like, you got to see this yeah, one. You yeah, got to I mean, see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think. I think it was like a, a, the same night. Casablanca and this. Mm. I watched them both. Nice. You know, uh, and a little VCR. The one-two in Fort Cobb, Oklahoma, and uh, yeah, it was great. It's like, man, movies are amazing. What about you, Art? I think I. I mean, obviously, long knew of it, but I think I first came to it, watched it in in full, was uh, like a year. Or two after undergrad finished up. So I'd, you know, gotten serious about watching movies and wanted to criticize movies and stuff. And so I knew I had to see Citizen Kane, you know, so me and a friend watched it and we watched Citizen Kane. Yeah. And so that was kind of my first encounter. But I mean, it's that idea of you've got to see it, right? Yeah. I mean, you got to see Citizen Kane. You got to see Casablanca. You got to see The Godfather. And so it was kind of checking off that box in but that moment. One of the things I think about Kane and Casablanca, though, sometimes the movies you got to see is like eating your vegetables. And I think these movies remain entertaining. I mean, they, that's the thing. They, they they continue to be compelling stories and uh, uh, interesting pieces of commercial you know, art. I well, think one of those movies more than the other one. Well, yeah, I'd rather watch Casablanca, too. Yeah. I would, too. But I guess the case I would make for Kane, which is a film that I think is like a pretty easy and unimpeachable five out of five. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just like starts shredding from the moment it opens it's just like doing kooky stuff i mean we've got the the camera the fisheye lens it's like the snow globe falls and shatters Mm -hmm. and obviously even before that we get this really sick kind of pull out from the snow globe snow globe falls and shatters and then we have a fisheye lens to show us the camera the the through the globe like it's just like choice 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 and and then it opens with this extended prologue that lays out like hi this is what Charles lines the movie yes exactly it says this is the movie you're about to watch Mm -hmm. and then cuts in with a bunch a Greek chorus of journalists who are always cloaked in shadow throughout Mm -hmm. the whole film and they're like we gotta find a real angle on this like no you already said the thing he's he suck. He's dead. He suck. There's nothing else to him. No. Yeah. He was not a man it's of not substance. That complicated. 
And that's the whole movie is just like this exploration of our obsession with the wealthy and the powerful and how that that quest to better understand these titans will inevitably lead you to the conclusion that they're small, sad, empty people who don't have enough love in their life. And narratively, it does is do a fairly labyrinthine plot that if you're not paying attention, you're going to kind of miss who's telling the story, when they're telling it, what part they play in the story. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of it. And so... You know, I showed this to a group of students this year and they had a hard time, I think, kind of keeping up with playing it. it backwards, forwards. Yeah, because yeah, you're trying to piece together like, wait, who's this person he's talking to? Because he's talking to him in their old age makeup, so they don't look like their younger self. And so you have to kind of pay attention to names and you have to know all of that information so that I think if you're not in tune with this sort of storytelling of a kind of a more complex plotting um you, you kind of have to really go back in and again, do your homework and maybe watch it again to really grasp what's happening and when it's happening. Well, and I think it's just a different um, movie going audience at the time too. You know, I mean, I, I'm not blaming the whole world on cell phones or whatever. This is not me doing that old curmudgeon thing, yeah. but there was no home video. You had to go to the theater mm-hmm. and ordinarily the theater was very much a sit down, shut up, pay attention and watch. And so this is the kind of thing you would do in that kind of storytelling. And I do think students are more uh, situated towards home viewing. They may or may not play on their phones while they watch their movie or do homework or whatever. Even if they're sort of just sitting there watching the movie, they're they're still doing it at home. The dog's up and about. Yeah. They're running the kitchen. You well, know. I get it. I mean, there are some lapses in time here where things are not happening. So I'm like, ah, I guess I can send the guys a message or I can mm-hmm. check something on Wikipedia or in IMDb real quick, you know, like, and, and then I go down a rabbit hole on my phone or my yeah. computer. Yeah. As so I get that. Quick as it jumps out of the gate, as I was saying, you're right. Around the halfway two thirds point, it does kind of start to do more of a simmer than a boil for a little bit. Um, and so I think that's, that's very fair. I, you know, if the apocrypha is to be believed, here's our first invocation, evocation of Mank. Um, at the time, this was considered to be a, a dense and complex screenplay. Mm-hmm. And there was question of how, how would general audiences be able to hang with this very sort of labyrinthine plot? Well, it's much more, you know, modernist in that sense. It yeah. is. It yeah. is. I mean, you can look to something like last year's Oppenheimer, uh, for a mm-hmm. movie that like has sort of a similar structure. Yeah. I would say is less has a similarly and less well executed structure. Um, I, I think Kane does a better job of sort of grounding you in one character at a time. Mm-hmm. And each flashback is sort of centered on a character and it's sort of that stru- that lends itself to just kind of a cleaner structure, like mm-hmm. kind of helps you fall, pull on the threads. And once you figure out like, Oh, okay, this Leland is Leland. Okay. Yeah. Right. Cause I think that's maybe Susan, Susan. Yeah. Jedediah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think Jedediah, like Jedi Leland is maybe the character who like most has, feels like their voice is way different in the old age performance. And so that one's kind of takes a second to pick on Burns, Bernstein's Bernstein. Bernstein's Bernstein. Like, yeah, yeah, right away. That guy is like doing such a voice with that character. Um, yeah, it. so I, I guess once you kind of like get your grounding on who's, who's who in the story, I think it's, pretty easy to follow and I, I think propulsive for the most part I think it really does move I wonder with your Oppenheimer comparison if um, they didn't have the color to monochrome option and he did the whole thing in black and white if audiences would have greater difficulty in knowing what's going on 100% I think so. yeah, yeah. Big 100% yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other major thing um, we can talk about Wells as director but Wells as actor I mean the moment he shows up on screen we get that great I mean, editing so much we, charisma. We, we talked also already about camera work and and plotting, but the other big part here is in the edit. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie's edited like I, I don't know what. I mean, yeah. incredibly put together that way. 
uh, and we get a number of these type of montage sequences, but we get this like match cut on um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, mm-hmm. right? Which just gets us a good 30 years in the future. And then we get that cut to Charles Foster Kane smirking in his chair and so much charisma. Orson Welles Orson's just showing up there. Fucking Riz Master. Well, he's got yeah, that dude. first, first like his first like laugh line is something along the lines of the newspaper's losing money and it's losing you know 10, a million a year, a million a year. And if I, I guess keep, for if I keep, sixty, I guess yeah. I'll I'll be out of money in sixty years. Yeah, yeah stuff like that. <laughs> like, um, and he's just and he's got his shirt. I mean, just the cut of I can't think of the banker's name. Um, Thatcher. The mm. cut of like Thatcher being like, now you are a ward of the bank. And then the boom, the hard cut to old Thatcher, uh, as, as Arthur said, like the ways in which he uses these match cuts to like advance the, the, the timeline of the story is really cool. And again, that first he's got that first uh, time we meet adult Kane, he's just got his shirt buttoned halfway down. It's just like, go off, buddy. Yeah. My friend Rowan came in. I was watching this in, in a discord. Uh, and they came in and were like, wow, what what happened to male whores? And I was like, you're looking at <laughs> one of the himbo, best to ever, you're looking at one of the best to ever do it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, that, that's the man that picked up Rita Hayworth. Yeah. Um, God, what a, what a sleazeball. Yeah. Mr. Wells. Uh, one of the the great that kings. That smile. Just a lecherous old man. Yeah. Uh, did he ever get married? Three or four times. Uh, well, I guess, <laughs> d- did it ever take, I guess, is the question. Right? Um, no. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah. Because he lived with Bogdanovich, like, yeah, he lived with Bogdanovich. for a while, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's her name? Oma. He was married to Virginia Nicholson for six years, mm-hmm. to Hayworth for four years, okay. um, Paola Mori for 30 years. Oh, until he died. Is that 85? Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So they were there for 30 they, years. All right. Okay. He was also with, uh, as a partner, Dolores Del Rio for three years. Okay. And Oya. Yeah. And then Oya Kodar for, mm, math is bad, no, 19 no. years. Yeah, okay. the so whole he a, time he was married to Pat, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah was kind of... A side piece? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, it was it's sort of like... Um, oh, gosh. Oh, it was like uh, Catherine Hepburn and... Car- and yeah, like, yeah. It was just like you knew, you but knew, you didn't know. It was just like like is, William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies. Yes. <laughs> I, I was... <laughs> I was going to say, um, you know, at the... Ah, what is the famous Isn't Marion Davies John Prime Wayne's Minister? real name? Jacques Chirac, I guess. Uh, but at his funeral, his wife and his mistress stood by each other. Yeah, you know, it just it was it's just one of those things. Yeah, yeah, wild, interesting. What a time well, when you're rich and famous and not in love. I guess there were no rules back then. You could just do whatever you wanted. Are there ever rules? And that's what led the downfall of Western society is all these Hollywood elites with their lecherous, lustful relationships. <laughs> I love this character. <laughs> the guy who hates Citizen Kane. I watched the Ke- I watched Kevin Bacon to leave the world behind one time <laughs> and went to work. Well, thank you, Sawdust Murphy. Uh, we're going to move on from our review section, which has been very freewheeling, but I think that's... We all like the movie. There's a lot of things that work. It's great. I hate it. Um, so, with that... One star. It, if you're teaching the movie... Yeah. Arthur. Am oh, I, wait, wait. Well, 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 did I hit record? We're going to start expanding yeah. the syllabus. Um, okay. What is expanding the syllabus, Arthur? Uh, that's a great question, Dustin. <laughs> um, I have lots of them. <laughs> we're off the rails today already. Expanding the syllabus is a thought experiment wherein we, the host, assemble an academic course or module within a course based around the assigned viewing for the week and adjacent text. That could be anything. Articles, magazines, newspapers, uh, clickbait, uh, TikTok reels, NFTs. video games, NFTs, um, albums. Soundtracks. If you can make the case, it should be taught. Playlists. <laughs> That's right. You can pair it with the movie. Memes. <laughs> All are fair game. Yeah. 
We'll do come prepared with one have, of those. Now, which what of these things have you guys put on it? Real quick, have either of you put anything this kind of out there on a syllabus? Have you have you ever like really sort of put something kind of off the beaten path on on a real one? Since you guys are both you know educators. Oh, I put no. like a couple Mostly of episodes of Welcome to Night Vale one time. Some... We did Serial one time. That okay. first season mm-hmm. of Serial. Okay. So, it, so, so podcast is about experimentals. I got first season serial, and then you said a couple episodes of Night Vale. Mm-hmm. I guess podcast is sort of a little on the experimental side. It's, we, well, it's less traditional media. Less yeah. traditional, yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, we did serial the first season, and then we watched uh, oh, what's the Ken Burns the Central Part Five. Oh, okay. Watch those. We so then there's like a comparison assignment kind of a thing gotcha. to go with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Arthur, do you have a syllabus ready, my friend? Yeah, I, I, I thought about, while it's not a real biopic, it is structurally close to a biopic. Um, and so biopic, I don't care. You know, I don't know how people pronounce it. I always said biopic, and that's what I'm going with. That's fine. Um, just to I think justify it sounds myself. cooler. Biopic? I, yeah, I, I yeah. think biopic sounds better, too. They just had this conversation on another show I was listening to. Oh, yeah. They came down the other side, and I disagree. I said it was biopic for a long time. Biopic for a long time, and then I heard somebody say biopic, and I'm like, I, don't, I guess... Like Latin rules, probably that's Greek rules, I guess. I mean, it's like sci-fi; it's not sci-fi, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I assume that's kind of where we're going. But I love sci-fi movies. Um, so anyway, I was thinking about the biopic, and I think uh, that that line that you need to have it find an angle mm-hmm. is what drives this narrative of you know what is Rosebud, what who was Rosebud, who was Rosebud. What, you know, who is the man behind Charles Foster Kane? And I think that is a rule that biopics should take to heart um, when whoever is writing it um, is putting it together. Because obviously this is a genre that has um, become a place filled with self-parody, as especially the musical biopic is so informed by... Uh, a, a very traditional uh, plotting structure that nothing really ever gets said about the people at the center of these mm-hmm. movies. Uh, and, and so I think it's interesting to play. So we'd probably talk about this in a biopics class. Uh, we'd probably do a little bit of STOM and some adaptation theory. Mm-hmm. We think about adaptation theory primarily when talking book to film, but it's also relevant when talking Adapting a person's life and trying to figure out the way to do that. Because I think the best biopics tend to still put up a a, a mirror to us to question ourselves, our society, our culture uh, through the life of whoever the the subject is. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to look at some kind of stereotypical examples to kind of develop our uh, our straight line or through line here. So we'd look at La Bamba. Okay. To start, I think, kind of a classic 80s um, biopic about Richie Valens. Uh, from there, we'd also watch the Buddy Holly story. Uh, and then we would jump ahead a little bit. We'd talk about Walk the Line and Ray. And these four kind of looking at the structure of what has become almost primarily the plotted structural uh, generic uh, evidence of the biopic. Yeah. Of Don't worry. I'll take the stage for this big get show. Famous. Yeah. yeah. I got to think about my whole life first, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then we would watch Walk Hard, the Dewey yeah. Cox story, because it completely does what the best parody does. And, and to this day is probably still the urtext in, in biopic, uh, what not to do, mm-hmm. uh, because of how well it, it parodied these films and this plotting and the structure. 
and then I want to look at a few, I think, biopics that do find an angle to do something interesting with. Uh, and we're going to start with a movie from last year, and that's Maestro. And while I do think it has a lot of problems, I think this idea of focusing in on Bernstein's marriage is the right idea. Um, because it's easy to kind of go that route of him becoming a famous conductor and his rise and fall or whatever. But to focus it on this human story about two people in a very fascinating relationship and all of the sort of conflicts that are kind of arise from that. I don't think it does what it needs to do with that, but it's an interesting take in a way of approaching uh, these kind of conversations about, I think LGBTQ relationships and closeted relationships and, you know, uh, the people involved in those sorts of relationships and those dynamics that can be uh, put together and how that all kind of can come to a boiling point if conversation isn't had and things like that. And, and while I feel, I think the movie does kind of fail to really land the plane on, on soft, several fronts. I think that approach, that angle is, is really what mm-hmm. helps make that movie work. Um, from there, I think we talk about Love and Mercy, Movie's the Brian so Wilson good. biopic. Uh, I think one of the best biopics of it rocks ever. ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to focus in on not the rise and fall of the Beach Boys, but to look at the inner life and the mind of Brian Wilson at two very distinct points in his career as he's composing Pet Sounds uh, with the Beach Boys, and then later as he is the sort of uh, person who has become a prisoner within these systems because of his, the way he's been taken advantage of because of his mental health problems and issues and um, being able to kind of look at that from two ways with two very distinct actors, bringing that to life, I think is just a fascinating way to approach mm-hmm. this type of storytelling. Uh, from there, we're going to take a look at Steve Jobs, um, talking Sorkin, talking um, Fassbender, talking um, Danny Boyle, but to look at the life of Steve Jobs through th- just three key moments in his lot corporate is uh, company life, mm-hmm. right? As he's making these announcements about Apple products and the conversations that kind of revolve around that. Again, it gives us a lot of insight into that character, but can give us insight into a multitude of other things. And I think uh, Sorkin's script is pretty solid here, um, but it's a good approach. And then finally, I think we'd end with another film from last year. Uh, and that's the Iron Claw about the Von Erich family mm-hmm. and could have easily become something very highly sensationalized, melodramatic, tabloidy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, instead, tries to find the very human story at the heart in Kevin Von Erich, uh, the only remaining Von Erich brother um, and the life that he come up in and the sort of masculinity that was put upon him, the ideas that were put upon him culturally and this sort of kind of mental struggle, this question of a family curse and, and really wrestling with these ideas of tragedy constantly befalling him. And we don't get have to see that tragedy for it to be impactful. We see some of that tragedy play out in front of us, but by and large, a lot of it gets to happen off screen. And I think that's very important to helping this work and not becoming something too sensationally dramatic and I think leaving a bad taste, I think it's handled in a really clever way and really allows us to focus more on the human story that's at the heart of the Von Erich family. It never falls into the the trauma porn trap that's yeah. just like mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, it easily could. <clears throat> For sure. With everything that's go- that goes on with that family. Um, and so that's what we talk about. We talk about how we could use Citizen Kane as a sort of 
guideline and narrative kind of North Star in developing uh, biopics for, uh, I don't know, maybe screenwriting or mm-hmm. production or whatever. And I, and I think you make a good point there about finding an angle because, I mean, there are a number of interesting stories that could be told. You know, there's figures in history. Now, now for sometimes, for some people, some particular events, there's really kind of one line or yeah. one set of events. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you mentioned Love and Mercy. And uh, what is the other Wilson brother's name? Ah, uh, it's gone out of my head right now. But he hung around. Owen? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Luke. <laughs> he hung wow. around Charles Manson for about oh, two yeah. weeks. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's a movie. Yeah, that's a movie. And you sort of like the career leading up to that. This this event. What does it do to him? His yeah. life. And so, I mean, that's a story that could be told that would be very, very compelling because yeah. you know the sort of other historical figures that intersect uh, that particular story. And so, uh, the, the point is that's the angle. Um, finding the angle, and uh, I think that is what makes them work because I do think. Even when, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna fire some shots in a movie that I know a lot of people love, but uh, I'm thinking about Spielberg's Lincoln, and mm. as much as I love Daniel Day Lewis's uh, performance in that, it really is just that segment of Lincoln's life, you know, this one particular moment here. But it really doesn't give us a lot of Lincolnalia kind of insight. It's just sort of we're gonna this is as far as we're gonna tell the story because there's, there's too much material, but it's not really it's not really an angle on it so much. I thought of that movie when Arthur was sort of talking about. The limited biopic, let's call it, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what Selma is another good one. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. focusing on the marches. Yeah, but I, I like um, Lincoln because of the way it sort of gives us this time in a context we can understand. It's sort of a political machinations sort of grounding. I get what you're saying because yeah. you're right. It doesn't offer any great insights into Lincoln, but I think that's maybe one of the movie's strengths. It's like I'm not going to try and tell you what this dude was like because who can say? Um, but we can tell you like how this happened. I yeah. can tell you like how these political events unfolded because there's enough information left, but it's kind of a cold movie at the same time. So I get what you're saying. Yeah. And I the, just the also... book it's based upon is a lot yeah. more about the sort of politics of moving this mm-hmm. character and that character, I mean, a character person over, you know, to get them on, on the side of passing the, um, the emancipation proclamation. Yeah. But yeah, it was a gang of, Team of Enemies. What is the name of that book? I don't remember now. That's what I was trying to... Team of Rivals? Team of or Rivals, something like yeah, that. something like that. I think another movie I could have put on this list, and I think I thought about it and I just forgot to put it down, is Priscilla, which mm. Sophia Coppola does, which yeah. is very much focused on Priscilla's life, meeting Elvis, and then their marriage, mm-hmm. and really nothing outside of that. Yeah. That's and and I, I, I always find that to be interesting, that sort of side story or that, you know, undertold yeah. little thing. Yeah. Like, this is really significant, too, but it, does, you know, it, it doesn't get the same splash that... You know, Heartbreak Elvis. Hotel yeah, gets, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, I like that very much. Very good, very good, Arthur. Um, Dalton, you can prepare with the syllabus, my friend. I do indeed, and I could probably go with Arthur's, but I think it's its own thing. Because maybe it's more of a media studies angle that I have. But I want to look at, you know, we, we've got in Citizen Kane this artifact that is widely regarded to be one of, if not the greatest films of the 20th century. Um, and a, a film that, among other things, like launches auteur theory in some ways with uh, Saris and Bazan's takes on the movie um, takes down William Randolph Hearst in some ways. Obviously he was already on his back foot politically and, and financially, but this movie sort of makes him look a fool in a grand way. And I, I guess I want to take this film and look at what I think is its best 21st century counterpart, uh, the social network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess to find a link between the two films, we look at, you know, the, the interesting link that exists already in that, you know, David Fincher, the director of the social network is also the director of Mank. 
the biography or the biopic of Herman Mankiewicz, the co-writer of Citizen Kane, who, if you don't know, is, is very famously and very interestingly an associate and dinner party companion of William Randolph Hearst. And that is sort of what made this such a controversial film when it came out. Uh, a lot of very powerful people said some very stupid shit in front of a, a very witty alcoholic screenwriter who had no 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 fucks left to give and all bridges prior had been burnt. Uh, and so what you get is this sort of interesting text that is very political, like in its opening moments, uh, you've got a character saying, hurt or not Hurst, Kane is a communist, Kane is a fascist. What does Kane say he is? I'm an American. Well, if you know your politics, that's all you need to know <laughs> about mm-hmm. Kane and what he believes in. Uh, and I think the the screenplay like does a really good job of painting the portrait of a man who doesn't believe in anything. Uh, and I think what Mank allows us to to have is is a text that says like. As much as film history and film writing has built up Orson Welles as the primary author of Citizen Kane, it's important to acknowledge like a dude who kind of had a relationship to the figure that was being parodied uh, in Kane. Um, We'd probably look at Pauline Kael's very famous but now largely discredited essay about how Wells didn't deserve screen co-screenwriting credit. Mm. Um, That's sort of been, you know, it's it's pretty much widely agreed upon now that whatever Mank sent to Wells, got a pass from Wells, pretty much. Uh, but I, I think Mank is still... The, the film Mank does a good job of not really having an opinion and, and like, shows Wells as kind of a domineering figure over Mank, but doesn't show it, you know, gives credit where it's due. It mm-hmm. makes it seem like Mank... Like, Wells is working on the pages as they're being sent to him. Um, but again, where we get to the social network, I think, is in Fincher... Um, you know, in Mank, uh, Fincher's adapting his father's screenplay, which gets an uncredited rewrite from Eric Roth. You know, very, very famous of Benjamin Button and Forrest Gump and a bunch of other crap you've heard of. Um, but I think where Social Network is interesting is we don't have another filmmaker or another screenwriter taking a pass on Aaron Sorkin's screenplay. What we have instead is Fincher editing Sorkin's screenplay. Sorkin, sort of our most famous uh, American screenwriting verbalist just in terms of like the patter, which I Dustin rolls his eyes because he he's a fan of Sorkin enough to be annoyed by the work. Right. Mm-hmm. As you, of course, being a West Wing lover, like you've, you've got plenty of exposure to the Sorkinisms that yeah. tend to come up again and again and again throughout his career. And I think what makes the social network so successful is that you've got sort of a streamliner journeyman like Fincher, um, on there just be like, no, we don't need that too artsy too up its own ass, like just red lines, red lines through the screenplay. And I I think it all kind of ties together into this interesting bow where we can ask like through this process that we have this collaborative medium of storytelling and movies, can we take down somebody like Mark Zuckerberg? Are movies able to hold the powerful accountable like they could 80 years ago? I think the answer is probably no. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, there was almost a version of the social network that had cooperation from Zuckerberg and Meta. Um, but the uh, the agreement was like, OK, you can make the movie and we'll help you. But you can't mention Harvard and you can't mention the social network or uh, can't mention Facebook by name. And they're like, well, that's that's the movie. That's the movie. So yeah. I guess we're not going to be cooperating together. Um, but it, it's also interesting. And, you know, Kane is kind of studied and obsessed over like who's you know, what what characters are amalgamations of real life people 
And then you have, on the other hand, the social network where it just says, no, this is who this person is. And yet we also have all of these insertions from Sorkin, these, you know, this made up girlfriend uh, in the the Eric Albright, you know, Rooney Mara character. We have all of these like things that Sorkin has invented for the screenplay that are, you know, of course, we can assume Mank invented things for the screenplay, but you have to assume some of it is pulled from his real life exposure to Hearst. Sure. Uh, we don't have that with the social network. What we have instead is like Sorkin writer that he is making a lot of guesses about what kind of pissed off young man uh, Zuckerberg was because he too was a pissed off young man at one point. And he's just kind of making assumptions based on his own experience. So I, again, we I think all three kind of like link together to give us something interesting to puzzle over with you know, how we tell stories about real people, especially the powerful and especially the people who are like controlling media uh, and whose whose interests are affecting democracies, uh, let's say, in both cases. Uh, again, I don't know exactly how they fit together, but I think they fit together interestingly. And I think mm-hmm. it could be studied at that, that angle of very much a media studies sort of how do we tell these big stories and like what is the net result can mm-hmm. can anything come of of getting these stories out uh what about you dustin how would you teach kane you've taught it before i have and well an intro to film yeah. I, it's going to come up again in history of film yeah. uh because you know historically introduction I- introducingly to the study of film studies this is one of the things you got to know as we were saying earlier in the, in the top part of the show um but i think if i was doing just sort of a module on kane rather than just sort of like a class period which i think is what i've typically done uh with it in the past is i would i think i do i do i do a norson wells thing you know you mentioned the collaborative process and i think that's important to always recognize when you start talking about tourism and we, we beat this horse every time it comes up but i'll say it one more time for anybody tuning in for the first time is that it is absolutely a collaborative art but there's also a sense in which directors especially not only directors but directors especially can at times wrestle control from the studio system from other voices to sort of get something of a singular voice and style that can be connected through multiple films and I think that's really the thing is Mankiewicz is all over this movie but also so is Orson Welles and tracing the Welles-ishness that's a weird Mm -hmm. adjective uh, the Wellesian aspects of this movie all the way through to some of his other films and thinking about what kind of filmmaker Will uh, Wells is making himself out to be. Um, can you pull up uh, his filmography for me real quick, um, Arthur? Because I, I want to pick a couple movies real quick uh, for that. But the top two things I want to do, uh, I, I want to look at this movie next to F is for Fake, especially. And the reason why uh, we met, we were talking about Oya um, just a few minutes ago, um, his um, mistress, uh, she stars in this film alongside him. And the whole movie is about how the movies lie to you, which I think is an interesting thing to think about in terms of his first movie being this sort of major journalist movie and then one of these last films uh, here being a, a movie in which you're you're following this sort of different kind of life and so that documentary film uh, which is turns out to be a magic trick he's going to tell you he tells you at the front part of the movie for the next hour I will do nothing to, but tell you the truth and he does a couple magic tricks and says you know but cinema is always magic and the movie's 90 minutes long 
So he starts lying to you at the third, at the you know, at mm-hmm. the one hour mark, mm-hmm. and tells you something. But he, you totally buy it and you believe it, and that's sort of the joke of the film. Uh, another documentary piece I want to look at, sort of external to uh, Wells' oeuvre, is Mark Cousins' great movie, The Eyes of Orson Welles. Uh, Mark Cousins is one of my favorite uh, video essayists and critics. He writes for Sight and Sound quite a bit. Um, his narration with his great little Irish lilt is. Um, He's mesmerizing. The person that did the story of film. Yes, That's yes. What I thought. And so um, he's got a great little two-hour movie um, just on the life of uh, Wells and, and sort of the artistic influences and what he sees. And I think that's going to be really helpful to, now that we've looked at Kane, now that we've looked at F is for Fake, we sort of get an idea of what's going on. And I think what we can see in his movies is something weirdly biographical, that as you run through the movies, you sort of see the ebb and flow of... Um, Wells' life. And so by the time The Third Man comes out, um, which is not one of his directed films, this is one of these things where he's a contributor as an as an actor. Um, it's uh, And so in, in that particular film, Graham Greene is a screenwriter, Reich is the uh, director, he still puts a stamp on it. And so you're getting an idea of that stamp, but he's also becoming something of a pariah. And that's the character, the Harry Lyme character that he plays in The Third Man, reflects that. Uh, same thing with Lady from Shanghai. You sort of see Rita Hayworth. Well, she was about to say, dog, the arc of like Kane's life versus Wells' life is kind of weird to think about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Is very, you can only make art about yourself, as my friend would say. And that's, I mean, it's exactly part of the case that I would be making there. And these are the places I would hit. Um, I would hit up Touch of Evil, which is sort of the end of his Hollywood period. And mm-hmm. so this is the last film noir in the film noir cycle, uh, typically in most of the textbooks. And so in 58, he makes this great movie uh, starring. uh, Viv- not Vivian Lee, Janet Lee, and um, oh, you know, Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston. I was gonna say, I kept wanting to say Moses, just Moses. Charlton Heston, and you know, he's Mexican because he has a mustache, yeah, uh, which is a choice, um, that's being made. It is the 50s, and you see, Wells, Wells is so funny about his weight. I just want to say that mm-hmm. he's choosing where the camera's placed and he puts himself in these rounded frames at times, these like rounded arches mm-hmm. that, that make him rounder. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and again, this sort of lawman, this corrupt lawman, it's sort of the end of his end of his rope. And so that's very interesting. Chimes of Midnight's another one I wanted to use uh, just because of the sort of Falstaff character and the, uh, the Shakespeare of the tragedy in which he sort of frames his own life uh, for that. And so I, I think those would be the movies that I'd want to look at and uh, the ways in which I would want to approach uh, a sort of a biographical examination of him. The Other Side of the Wind is a movie we might look at, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I mean, I really, really love it. Well's Netflix movie. I know. I know. <laughs> it was one of my best films of History's, 2018 or whatever. Wild. Yeah, it's so so crazy. It's such a good movie, but I don't. I don't know. I think you gotta watch Mank, especially yeah. like because Wells is sort of framed as the devil, mm. and like uh, Mank is making a Faustian bargain with him uh, to not take screenplay credit, and then eventually changes his mind. That's wild. It is. It's an interesting mm-hmm. story, and I guess. That's that's this authorship thing becomes really interesting. We start thinking about people wanting credit versus not wanting credit. And again, Mank, you've got the case of like Eric Roth doing this uncredited rewrite on his collaborator's father's screenplay that went un- unproduced. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, authorship gets really interesting when you think about Kane and, yeah. and by extension Mank. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go, dear listener. I think your syllabus just got much longer. I think now it's time we get down to business.
question for you, Dustin. Yes. Um, just again, because I'm I'm thinking about I, I my relationship with Kane is so tied to my relationship with Mank because I double featured them. That sure. Was my first watch for both. And movies. I haven't seen Mank. I know, but I, I I'm not going to ask you a question about that movie. Uh, but I'm going to use that movie to ask you a question, I guess. Um, or really not even that because the the quotes that I have to reference are from the Killer Press cycle, uh, mm-hmm. which was Fincher's follow up to Mank. So Wells is sort of interesting, right? As an early auteur, like somebody who's like name above the title Mm -hmm. in a big way. And it's interesting to me that you have in him, like somebody who wants as much credit as possible, loves to be a multi hyphenate. He's a big personality. Yeah. Yeah. And then in Fincher, you have somebody who will kind of askew credit, but when you ask his collaborators, they point to him and Mm -hmm. say, well, it was his idea. So I'm I'm kind of interested in sort of the the history of sort of director as celebrity. I know we've talked about the you know, vulgar auteurs, auteurs of commerce, and and sort of what's the other the fancy word for celebrity commercial. auteur? Commercial or auteur of commerce and commercial auteur. There we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think Wells. You know, Wells reminds me more of like William Castle. Uh, just with money, a showman, and, and, and a salesman, and success. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's he's he. Well, and, and I think F for Fake is a good place to start because the whole thing is he's he's doing magic tricks, like mm. hand, sleight of hand, you know, magic tricks, and uh, that that's that's really what he sees himself as as a performer. He begins to start with the Mercury players, uh, most of whom are fulfilling most of the roles mm-hmm. in Citizen Kane themselves, and so they're mm-hmm. uh, they're just sort of a theater troupe, experimental kind of theater troupe, and I I I think you know in his. I mean, he really began his career working in music and painting. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's just an artist performer. Mm -hmm. And so he's much more like the guys that would, in the 50s and 60s, put together these sort of drive-through attractions and these sort of sensational bits. But he was able to find a way to do that for something more middle-brow. And so he's just a middle-brow huckster Mm. is is really what he seems like. Carnival Barker. Yeah, Carnival Barker. You can see this in the trailers from the time for Kane. Mm -hmm. If you go look up, like, what the trailers for Citizen Kane are, they don't show you anything from the movie. It's him, like, being the hype man for the Mercury players and just being like... He won't show himself in the trailer, too, which is very funny. It shows the the boom mic that's being brought up to the camera, and and you can assume that Kane, or Kane, there you go, Wells is just out of frame talking into the mic about his great new picture, and it's it's a really, if, if you yeah. haven't seen it, you should look it up, listener, but it's it's a very cool trailer, uh, but it kind of tells you a lot about sort of what you've described us in this kind of we got, Wells as Huckster. I mean, think about his very first big sort of famous splash, which is his War of the Worlds radio program. Yeah. yeah. And uh, doing this Again, it's a gimmick. It's you basically we'll do a radio show, just like news reports from the field, but we'll tell uh, we'll do the, also the sort of standard radio theater thing. Yeah. But we're going to make it in it. Well, it's, we'll do it like found footage. I mean, really, that, yeah. that, 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 that's, that's almost yeah, yeah. the radio idea that they had for it, uh, because I think we can do it relatively inexpensively with the equipment that we already have, and it will be riveting for an audience. And so that's that is more of what Wells seems like to me as a performer. And I, I do think he's a sensitive and thoughtful artist as well mm-hmm. when it comes to composition uh, of the individual pieces of work. But I think his persona is always very, very performative. And um, he is one, uh, he's a man that seems to be desperate to make more, to just keep making and telling more stories. He's, he's one of those creative output kind of people. I was looking at his 
AFI Lifetime Achievement Award, I think, or I don't think it was the Oscars. I think it was AFI Lifetime Achievement Award uh, acceptance speech. And people said some nice glowing things about him. And he got up there. And uh, he did. I mean, he had like 15 minutes or whatever to talk. He talked for fundraising, right? Yeah, he did five minutes of that, and then 10 minutes of I'm trying to make something else. And if you yeah. want to give me some money, because that's wow. he just wants to make that's it. What he cares about, and and nobody wanted to fund him because yeah. he's he's politically unclassifiable, uh, and uh, he's you know strangely on the outside of a lot of you know norms. He's kind of just viewed as a drunk at that point in his yeah. life, too, right? I mean, this is this is. Fish stick commercial era. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the champagne commercial. You know what, what I'm talking about. <laughs> I was trying to do a well, a bad drunk Wells. <laughs> you didn't, do you know about the, the, the champagne commercial where he's like super drunk? And no. He's, yeah, I don't think I s- or maybe it is the fish stick. There's a bunch of outtakes of him doing commercial ad reads from this era and you kind of, you feel bad for it's the guy. It's a bad time. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's Pure funny. Moira Rose levels yeah. of performance. Exactly. exactly. I mean, it's funny because he's funny, mm-hmm. but it is sort of a bummer. It's kind of sad. Yeah. I want to connect a dot to last week's show. Well, I was going to go, go back ahead. to his kind of central question, and you already mentioned Sarah's, and I, mm-hmm. I think there's something that Sarah says, essentially to the effect of, you, you can't lend too much credit to a director interview. Mm. I think that's what in one of his articles he's talking about. The liars, that. yeah. Yeah. You, so there's a part of that is in their interviews, especially I think in the sort of peak time of Hollywood, and especially somebody like, um, well, I almost called him Kane as well, uh, Wells, is that if he is going to be playing himself up mm-hmm. to a certain level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hitchcock, I think, does this to great effect as sure. well, especially in the Hitchcock Truffaut discussions. It feels like one of those things that's just sort of baked into cinema, you know, because of its its outgrowth from vaudeville because of its always being a how how much can we flip this for how much money can we make out of this one pile of money um, and obviously it's different throughout the history of film and different countries have national film funds but where it starts and where it you know is dominant in the united states it is a purely capitalist model mm-hmm. and it does make you wonder about like the director as salesman is sort of an mm-hmm. interesting thing yeah you think about the director as like architect and the director as sort of you know construction foreman artist yeah Yeah. artist but also you know a Mm -hmm. people mover you know i think of the director in that way strategizer chess chess player ceo Mm -hmm. right they're they're, they're the king of a small country for you know one to two years depending on project management i mean that's actually the role right yeah but but salesman is um, an equally important role that Mm -hmm. we don't always think about which is interesting well and especially because i think we can look at the downfall of, you know, whether we say the commercial tour, probably the commercial tour is the best thing, uh, and the kind of death of the movie star, both kind of taking place alongside the same timeline, I think, in the 2000s, mm. right? Where, you know, outside of a few director names like Chris Nolan, Tarantino, uh, Tarantino, yeah. now Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. right? People don't really know directors anymore. And so they're not the person you're usually going to be talking to in a press junket unless it's like, a letterboxed or a, you know, kind of a mm-hmm. hardcore film fan type of press outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, by and large, you're talking to the movie stars. And so I, I think that's a part of it as well Is like, we just don't think about that element of the director is carnival barker mm-hmm. because especially now that we just, you know, make movies to fill the content void. So people have something to watch in the background mm-hmm. uh, by and large. Uh, I, I think it's a different kind of w- thing to think about it is such a different world too i mean that's that's another thing about watching kane that is just so interesting is it really is 
just the way that watching an international film is a window to another country's culture. Mm. Watching a film from eight decades prior is a window into another time. Mm -hmm. And it makes you think about the ways in which some, some aspects of human behavior are sort of immutable and fixed uh, and the ways in which history just like is a big revolving door of bullshit. It's it's very, (laughs) I mean, it just like it identifies so many quirks of, Trumpian figures, but not just Trump. Sure. Like lots of sort of CEO, s- mogul, executive. Just I'm trying to think of a less crass way to put it, but people with small, sociopath, small people, small dick energy. <laughs> people who just like need to be perceived as unyielding. Great, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's such an interesting like diagnosis of Kane as just like this this megalomaniac who like wants love so badly. But couldn't give you love if if he you taught. Want, but but love's not even really what he wants. He he wants adoration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and this was about to say is like he's incapable of of love. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't understand it. Mm-hmm. It's just just kind of a foreign concept to him. Like and even even in moments, I was talking with my friend Harper about what I see as like an almost self aware moment, but is clearly not one where he's like, you know, if I hadn't been rich, I could have been a great man. And it's, it's still like, it's mm. all about the stumbling blocks that prevented him from his potential. Right. But well, he sees that the money is like, there's something about being raised by the bank that has broken him. And he does see that. Well, there's also that moment with Susan where he's, you know, he says, you know, you like me, even though you don't know who I am, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. another kind of sure. moment where he gets some interest introspection on him but the man the the relationship with susan is so interesting because the singer stuff like she says it's it's her mom's dream for her it's not even her dream for her yeah and he just like immediately latches on to that yeah yep won't hear anything else when it's like a thoroughly american christmas carol i i you know i was thinking about dickens's um no seriously i get what you're saying scrooge Scrooge being visited by the ghost is because scrooge can at least hear the ghosts the 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 ghosts of his life he has completely exercised he that that's that's the thing that he has done is is he's he's become so individualistic and so isolated from everybody else that he's he's um there there's no way he's he's unreachable for any sort of you know uh spiritual uh communication mm-hmm. of any sort and that's that's why he dies the way he does uh you know sad and alone and longing for a past that he can never reclaim and uh, and so I, I think there's there's sort of like a reverse of Dickens uh, a mm, lot at, at root here uh, in like the that. story. Uh, I was going to say something formally because we talked so much about uh, the transcendental style last week and we talked about psychological realism. I want to talk about German expressionism, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is a form of psychological realism, but it can be more extreme. And I think what we see here in Kane is that more extreme, less realistic kind of thing take place. I mean, a realistic version of it is the distant dinner table scenes with the first wife um, yeah. whose name escapes me, the president's niece. And so uh, you need to know better. Yeah. She used to be the president's niece and how they begin having breakfast together close by and talking and at the table gets longer and longer. And as they, it, it sort of mirrors the distance between them. That mm. that's a, that's a psychological realism. It's Emily. It's Emily. Uh, Susan Alexander's the one that matters, right? Yeah. Uh, she's the one that got, she's got the one with the voltage. Yeah. Emily's uh, the one that Kane has killed, right? No, I mean maybe her and the kid. You think? I see that's such interesting symmetry. He he was taken to be raised by somebody else, and his son is also taken to be raised by somebody else. Yeah. Sort of fun biography 
text biography symmetry. Is the son taken? Yeah, I mean, not the, literally. The, the, taken. He dies in the wreck, doesn't he? That's yeah. what I thought. But I mean, but his, the wife takes takes him away. I see what you're saying. That's, mm-hmm. Okay, pro- yeah. the last Kane really ever sees of him. Yeah, yeah. Until he has him killed. Until yeah. he has him. <laughs> Goodness gracious! I like that. That's a fun fan theory. <laughs> I I I don't know what to do with that. Um, and I'm I'm not, just saying he's the kind of guy that can have things happen. He, that's true. That's all I'm saying. He's got resources and he knows people. But you can't start the Spanish Civil War without <laughs> having a few people on a payroll. The uh, the gothic Xanadu, even in the first scenes, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the ways in which it mirrors the the same sort of German expressionist uh, Chascaro high contrast um, mm-hmm. use of matte paintings and and, and miniatures mm-hmm. to show the, the the again the sort of haunted nature of the man and the space in which the man lives. That's that's German expressionism, which is the style that later gives away in American filmmaking into film noir. And honestly, this movie looks more like a film noir than the other nineteen forty one movie that's sort of great, the Maltese, Maltese Falcon. Falcon. I was about to say, like, this does, like, is proto-noir in so many w- It's ways. also more complex than the Maltese Falcon, sure, By a lot, yeah. yeah. But just, like, the shadows in this movie are mm-hmm. ridiculous. One of my favorites is when, I forget the name of the journalist, but the journalist that goes to, like, Thatcher's, you know, hall or whatever to read yeah. his unpublished memoir, and they open the door, and he walks into this big table, and it's just this shaft of light illuminating just mm. the table in this pitch black room, and it's just like, right. holy shit. Yeah, that's, that's so expressionism good. there, yeah. yeah. Well, even the journalists in that room after the screening is so good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're, they're, they're all starting to shadows. see smoke and they're, light, the well, projector coming through. And even at the end of the movie, they're still cloaked in yeah. shadow. They mm-hmm. stay in chorus, which is so cool. Uh, I was thinking of, of um, oh crap, there's a that... I guess that's a great one. I can't remember the one I was actually thinking of, but the, the one Arthur just mentioned uh, where we first meet the journalist, it's all smoky and mm-hmm. oh, it's great. But the, oh, I, when you were talking about Xanadu, I thought about cabinet, Dr. Caligari. Mm, yeah, just sure. The map paintings are super similar yeah, in yeah. terms of just like creating this sort of, bigness like yeah well and again the sort of uh the tension the 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 sort of despair mm. uh, you know again the, the the german expressionism is closely related to psychological realism because it is about psychological feelings being expressed outward and so there's you know there's there's a there's a sort of a, a blurrier line between it than say the the sparse transcendental style and so it, it was just i think i thought it was worth pointing out since we've been doing like a that. little bit of um, formalism primer coming in another shot i really like i think is when uh it's He's talking to old Jedediah. Jedediah is relating the story of Foster Kane finishing the critique of mm. Susan. Mm-hmm. And then we get the shot back to old Jedediah where we see Kane writing that like as, as though it's on a screen and a thought bubble next to his head. It's just a really cool shot mm-hmm. as that all kind of comes together in that edit. That focus, uh, speaking of that scene, where uh, oh, that yep, deep focus, yeah, that young Jedediah yep. walks into the bullpen yep. and it's tight on on Kane. Oh, mm-hmm. and then uh, Bernstein's in the very, very in back, the very, very tiny. Back. Yeah, yep. that's called depth of field. There was a lot of that. I mean, we yeah, get that, deep focus photography, and we get to see that as well in the initial uh, when Kane is taken. Uh, we see him playing outside through the windows mm. as mom and dad mm-hmm. and the the lawyer are talking. And how good is she? Like dead in the eyes. Oh yeah, just like so. That, that whole she scene is like so heartbreaking. Mind. And yeah. dad, I mean, you fully empathize. I think with dad, mm-hmm. and he's so ineffectual. But you're and, like, oh my god, you poor man. Yeah, well, and he, he has he, that one moment where she turns on him. Right, like he tries to say he just needs a little discipline, and then she completely turns on him, even though he's been the only somewhat empathetic character it's it's an interesting turn right it does seem it makes like you he's wonder. been violent but that's what i was about to say yeah. it yeah. makes you wonder how often he's violent because she's like i'm trying to keep him away from you so yeah. it does kind of like go oh what is this ineffectual or dude's actual deal for 
Foster yeah. so, to it's so loaded because yeah. the performance lends you to I mean definitely lend your sympathies to him like that sounds like you know he'd be halfway a human if he got raised by that guy yeah you know or he's an angry drunk who beats the family and, and we just, don't know he yeah. just happens to be sober and right that, then that's yeah. the kind of complicated layers to this movie that make it so effective yeah mm-hmm. the ambiguity is yeah part of the sauce for sure <laughs> and the possible murder I, man Arthur you've wrecked my world I um, thought about it when I I mean the last time so I've, I've watched it twice this year because I watched it for class and when there is that little thing of like in that press release video uh, daily real thing that they're doing when he mentions like in 1918 she dies in the car wreck with the son and I'm like Kane have her killed? <laughs> and that's all I think about now. It's like yeah. Kane had her killed. Damn. It's May- so maybe they point it out and then they never touch on it again. Yeah. It's in that outline at the beginning of the film, but then zero mention of it later. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so- I want to mention this, the, uh, the newsreel footage, uh, there at the beginning, just mm-hmm. one of the sort of interesting, uh, realistic touches is they uh, took sandpaper to the celluloid to, uh, to scuff it up to, oh, make, to make it look like it's, you know, been running, you know, the track yeah. and, uh, whatnot. And so those newsreel, you know, obviously there was not historical footage of Charles Foster Kane, who's a fictionalized William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. And so they did that in order to make it look like this is what you would see if you were in a movie, you know, if you were at the movie theater, those, those newsreels had, well, now we just put been, some digital cigarette burns on it and call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I just, News on the march. I love it. It just makes me so happy to just hear an old timey radio voice. Yeah. Ugh, it's so good. And it just makes me happy to see a radio picture show up. You know, doing down in front with Alex, I have watched a couple of RKO movies lately, and it's just getting to be a, a, a studio title that I'm like, mm-hmm. I love seeing it. it makes that, me yeah, happy. That, that flashing electricity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, beep, 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 beep. yeah, it's good shit. Um, let's talk about Rosebud. Because I think we need to talk about Rosebud. Do we? I, well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Are so, there any entendres, or do you are you, do you I, really want to know? I, 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 I didn't want to okay. get just to the so the the William Randolph. What is Rosebud? Let's, let's talk about what what it is historically, but I want to talk about what it is in the movie. Yeah. Because I think it's more than just the sled for sure. Uh, and so that that's what I want to get. Well, the to. journalist speaks to what it really is, right? But yeah. Before the movie goes ahead and says, like, all right, here's your answer. Yeah. But concerning what Marion Davies, uh, well. He, you should go if you really are interested in the real life parallels. <laughs> Wikipedia is a great place for you to start, as always. But there is a full Wikipedia page of just like real life references for Citizen Kane or whatever. And mm-hmm. There's but there's an eight chan page you've been hanging out on, right? Of course. <laughs> uh, most characters in this movie are an amalgamation of a lot of people, including sure. Kane. Kane yeah. has a lot of factors from like other real yeah. tycoons. Not just so does Davies. However. The Apocrypha tells us if we if we turn to the Apocrypha, <laughs> yes, in the Book of Maccabees we yeah. find in, in the Book of MGM. <laughs> what what Goldmeyer tells us the is, Book of Mankiewicz. Yeah, the Book of Mankiewicz is that Rosebud was Marion Davies' clitoris, and that is what William Randolph Hearst his, his he was obsessed was. with this particular part of her anatomy. Yes, which for a man of his day. <laughs> Ah, is you know ah, ah, progressive. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a mark of the positive column. If nothing I mean, else, the fact he even knows what it is is kind of yeah. Yeah, his stock just went up. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but we we have no way of knowing that's and they make a reference to that joke in the movie Mank. Yeah, so this is like a long held apocrypha. It's been around forever. Yeah, and I, I care very little about. I think it's funny. It's but, funny to mention, but I, I yeah I care Justin very cares little, very little about 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 that particular piece of trivia. 
Now let's talk about what it means in the movie <laughs> before Arthur like falls out of his chair. We'll just let him laugh because um, I'm interested in what you have. To, I think I know where you're going with this. Because you know what is it that he wants? Because I think there, there here are the possibilities. Um, is it that he wants to go back and start over and do it right next time? Mm-hmm. You know that because that that sled is what he has the day the bank takes him away yeah. mm-hmm. to uh, raise him in the boarding school. Is it simply childhood innocence that he's an old man and he's sad and he just wants to be happy like he was when he once was happy? Is it the pursuit of of just general happiness or love? Or is it the renunciation of wealth for the poverty that he lived in at that time? And so these are among the options. There are probably more for that. What do you guys think about what the sled means? I think the journalist does such a good job within the text of sort of exploring this idea, right? This like, it doesn't matter what Rosebud means. Like we couldn't, we could not sum up a person's life in one word. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you cannot, whether it is a well-drawn fictional character or a real person, uh, you know, whether it's Kane or Zuckerberg or Sorkin Zuckerberg or the real Zuckerberg, whatever you're looking at, you can't just say like, this is the one motivating factor. Well, and I agree with they that. wouldn't know what the one motivating yeah, factor I, is. I, I agree with that. I, I think that's true that you cannot find the one th- because he is too complicated of a character. And I think they're all true, I guess is what my answer is. I, I guess the question that remains for me though is what is he, what, what is Wells's character saying by in his dying gasp, mm. this is the thing he says. So what is the, what is the longing or what is the, the prayer. What is what 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 is well, the motivation? Has, obviously, I think he, it's the love thing. Uh, he has he got the so he got the sled so. right when he got his mom's estate. So, like the sled is there among his other treasures. Mm-hmm. So he has it. It is something more ephemeral than it is not the physical object. It is what the object represents, which right. is is his mother, is his home in Colorado, is playing Union cavalry in the front yard and making snowmen. It, it's I think it's all of that. Mm-hmm. I think it is it is the love, it is the childhood innocence. I think it's all tied up in like interrelated things. But so it you is don't think maybe. it's repentance? You don't think it's regret? No, fuck no. I don't think he's I don't think he's I that think kind of guy. I, I don't think, think he can see that far. I think it, it may be existential of why was I given up for this? Yes, exactly. Mm. I think that's as far as it goes. Yeah, I don't think he's mad about it. The money thing. No. <laughs> I don't think no. he's regretting any of that. I don't think that. he cares about the working man. I think I think it is deeply rooted in yeah. Was I loved? Was I not loved? Why can't I find love? Like yeah. that element of it is, I think, more so than mm-hmm. a moment of. I'm so with you on this read. Yes, because Leland, I think, has it has his number when he's like, yeah. "Here's what the working man wants: a union." And you're about to find out, your beloved man of the people, you beloved man of the people, are about to find out they want it as their right, not their gift from you. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, Leland has him. Hook, line, and sinker right there. Yeah, I he, think he so knows, too. He's got him summed up. He knows this dude's deal. I mean, again, we we are told by the text, and again, I, I'm making some assumptions about what kind of dude Mankiewicz was based on the movie Mank. Um, but based on the movie Mank, he was very interested in Upton Sinclair's run for governor as a socialist in, in California in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously he lost, and a lot of the reason, a lot of the reason for that is, you know, Hearst putting his weight against him. Um, and that is a big plot point in the movie Mank. So when you have at the beginning of the film, the screenplay by Wells and Mankwitz, and as Dustin said, like Wells always kind of a hard to pin down guy politically Mank a little less. So I think we we Mm kind of know how, where he stood in most places. Uh, but you have right there, you know, uh, I tell you this, Charles Foster Kane is nothing more than a communist. And then you have the working man saying he's a fascist and you have Kane saying he's an American. American. 
And I think like that's the movie right there telling you like, no, we know what Kane is. Uh, Kane is a fascist. If somebody calls you a fascist and you don't say, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're you are you are motivated by the will to power, even if you can't see it. And I think that's that's the movie's way of saying like whatever Kane is. Which is probably not literally a fascist. Yeah, it's like I don't think I don't think fascism really would typify no. what he's doing there. Yeah, but he's sort of ideologically bankrupt. Right. I no, I think there is that. I mean, there yeah. to use a Sorkin line since we're connecting all these various dots here from sure. the West Wing. Um, there's a there's a line where a candidate is not doing a very good job of articulating their views because they don't want to put anybody off, and said so it sounds like the only thing we're for is being president, and the only thing we're against is not the other guys. And that seems to be Kane's you know, bit, political yeah. platform as well, is that he's he's for winning and not the other people winning. Yeah. And that's it. And, and, and uh, you know, which is weirdly, golly, predictive, prescient, because mm-hmm. um, I look at contemporary politics and I don't see a lot of ideologues at all either, even amongst the ones that are hard line. It's all good guy, bad, bad, bad it's guy. It's good guy, stuff. bad guy. Mm-hmm. And it's just us winning. And this is this is the tack that will get us to win. Yeah. It's not about the ideas. It's, it's me putting together a brand. And it's an effective tack because that's what works. A, 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 a winning marketing package, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that seems to be what Kane has been doing his whole life is trying to put together the best package to be adored. Well, the ideologues we have operate in dog whistles, right? Sure. So, I mean, there's it's this whole. Again, the the ways in which this film is predictive, or at the very least instructive, is are super interesting. And I guess I just I make reference to like sort of our our modern struggles with far right issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to be delicate um, because it is so interesting. Like you said, to to use the, the West Wing idea of like, oh, you just don't want to piss anybody off, but. If we have extremism on the table, you got to be willing to like acknowledge it and mm-hmm. say it and go, I don't, I don't like that these people like me. Right. I want to distance myself from them. And you don't have that happening right mm-hmm. now, which is interesting. And again, I don't know, like, again, the, the model of Kane is the model of like winning for its own sake, mm-hmm. winning for the adoration, winning for the popularity. And it is disconcerting and, uh, it makes you wonder if if Wells and Mank saw further uh, in in terms of the American character. Yeah, you know, it is one of those great moments where movies like are are very sort of, not, if not prescient, like di- the diagnostic, maybe mm-hmm. yeah, just like yeah. see a problem in the American psyche and go, we got to work on this, man. And the and the movies that endure are the ones that hit on the ideas that continue to sort of percolate and permeate. Plague. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and plague is uh, yeah a good good way to put it, Arthur. Um. It is interesting that he is like the boy who is raised by the bank, the most Mm -hmm. citizen Kane, the most American man raised by bankers. He's he's Truman. Uh, Educated (laughs) educated by corporation. Yeah. 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 Damn, he is Truman. Whoa. That's I love that. That's very fun. Uh, Not, you know. President Truman. No, of course. Uh, no. Jim Carrey's Jim Carrey's Truman. Truman, Yeah. From the Truman show. What's Truman's last name? Truman Burbank. Yeah, that's that's right. Burb- of course, it's Burbank. Yeah. yeah, that's so funny. Gosh, what a good joke. Hey, Peter Weir. That's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I was, I was looking through my notes, but we've kind of hit on everything I wanted to talk about. Do either of you have like a lingering thought on Kane that we haven't touched on? I don't think so. I, I would just say this in conclusion that I don't think a good selling point for trying to I have this trying to. I don't. I don't need anybody else to love this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting other people to watch it, I, I think the the selling point has always been how innovative it was and how it was amazing in the way in which uh, it did new things. And the things it did um, are so 
conventional now. They are they are they yeah. are the tropes yeah. now. And I, I, I just I, I find that as I'm introducing this film to uh, students, yeah, you know, university level, 19, 20 year old students of film, that that doesn't that's not much of a selling point uh, because he, he really did rewrite the book of how you tell stories in the sound era. Yeah. And uh, and so by doing what he did, it is crazy. And I, I imagine just blowing people's minds, you know, in 1941. But in 2023. I can't get a student to get fired up about that. Well, I wasn't fired up about when I first watched it after undergraduate. I mean, really, Mm -hmm. because I've seen all the things, right? Sure. I mean, I'm super familiar with Susan Cain from The Simpsons. Sure. I mean, kind of. You've seen the whole movie. Going to the Apocrypha. Yeah, that you can recreate Citizen Kane from Simpsons clips. I had Casablanca and Rugrats was mine, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally. Get but what it's you the mean. same idea. So you know, yeah. some of that mystique's taken out, and then to watch the movie that is heralded as the greatest movie of all time for decades, to say you have to watch this movie, and then to kind of be like, that, that's it, mm-hmm. that's the movie, right? Because it is kind of I've slow seen in these the kind of edits. I've seen this sort of yeah. editing done. I've seen this sort of camera work done. I've seen this sort of complicated interweaving timeline story. Done. Yeah. yeah. So like going to it then. And so like, I think that's the thing about it is like, if especially in tw- now, especially in 2023, maybe, but even then in 2010 or 11, when I first watch it um, without that setup. And this is, I think something interesting is without setting it up of like, this is why it's great. Like it's, I don't know that, modern audiences who aren't film fans who are in the know recognize it for being something great, Mm -hmm. which is a weird place for it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I I guess here's where, because I think we're gonna talk about this more next week as well. Probably. I guess as we're talking about like, what is our big sell for Kane? I guess I I would go ahead and refer back to (laughs) social network, I guess. and, And say, let's not even one of the greatest films of all, Let's just say it a great film. Sure. Let's just mm-hmm. just say a great film about media. And if we can look at if if we you are interested in a modern film about media, that's very good. I think you you would do yourself a service by, you know, deepening your context for social network by looking at Kane because it is such a roadmap for making a movie about the guy who created Facebook. It really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think is again interesting to study in terms of where does cinema sit at the crossroads of the content hole, as Arthur alluded to at the very beginning of this episode, where does it sit then now versus where it's at 80 years ago? And like, can movies change public opinion and impact public discourse the way they did 80 years ago? And if so, well, I guess the question is if they can, it's going to be different now. Mm -hmm. And I guess the social network and where Mark Zuckerberg has not uh, been impeded in success, I guess, by that movie. Doesn't seem that way, no. No, as as much as that film kind of writes him as a scumbag, uh, it doesn't seem to have impacted him at all. So I guess the, the question is, like, if movies can still be impactful, we have to ask how and like to what end. And well, I don't know. I don't know what. Ex- have, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I don't know what extent that's even an effective or virtuous goal. So what if the social network and everyone got off Facebook and we all got on MySpace again, right? Or yeah. you know something like that. I mean, what if? So yeah, you know, like yeah. like the political aims of something like that don't seem to be very high or very compelling. 
uh, for something like that. Um, but you know, other movies do have other kinds of politics that, um, may be, um, aiming a little higher, but even then I'm not sure about the, well, just finding the audience. Everyone saw Citizen Kane in the forties yeah. eventually, you know, not, I think that's a huge part of the difference. Yeah. Whereas social network was like an, an also ran in that Oscar. Mm-hmm. Year. Yeah. Was it though? It did fairly well that year. Like at score and screenplay. No, I'm talking box office. Uh, I just, guess compared, yeah, compared to other uh, nominees that year, it did fairly well. That's a good point. Well, then the, just the general saturation of the movies in general. Yeah. People just don't see movies. And that's what I, I yeah. guess I was referring to is sort of the cultural saturation of movies at this point of, you know, where we're at in the 21st yeah, century. Yeah, make $224 million off of 40 Which is nuts to think about. Crazy like, profitable. Uh, people in rooms talking movie doing that well. Much more successful financially than Citizen Kane was. Yeah. In sure. his initial run. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, inflation-wise. Kind of blanked out of the Oscars except for a couple of things, right? Screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nine nominations picks up Best Original Screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mank and Wells were both not there, I think. Checks out. If I remember right. Um, the movie Mank will tell you. Right. I'll give you that much. Uh, if nothing I, else, don't want you to watch Mank. I do want you to watch Mank. I think if, well, I guess who I'm talking to is the people who are listening to this who have already seen Citizen Kane. Uh, because I, I think even if, you know, Mank is not and much like Kane, you know, treat Mank as a sort of a what if we don't know that this is what Mank was like. And we don't know that this is what the process of making making Kane making like. making Kane. <laughs> <laughs> we don't there's just a, there's a lot of unknowns, but it is an interesting like footnote mm-hmm. to Kane. I think I think it like really serves to deepen things, makes you think more critically about like RKO and MGM and just sort of how we treated screenwriters even worse than, I mean, we don't treat them great now and we treated them pretty equally dog shittily in the thirties and forties. <laughs> and I think make is a good kind of exploration of sort of the evolution of, of screenwriter as like a co auteur mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, I don't know. Useful in that regard. Uh, I'm interested in what you said about social network, but we can talk about it another day, sort of the aims of a movie in the 21st century and like, what are the political ambitions of something that says, I don't know, maybe the this guy is a terrible person. Maybe the Harvard hierarchy is not something we should be putting on all of human interaction. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, Mank. Mank. <laughs> well, okay. Mank so, of it what you will. All right, guys. <laughs> shelf go. or trash on three. One, two, three. Shelf. shelf. Okay. Um, obviously, that's that. <laughs> you missed your shot. Um, but yeah, so there's that. Um, we're probably wrong. Dalton's going to tell you how you can tell us. Good trash genrecast at gmail.com. If you want to give us some long form feedback, tell us what you think about Citizen Kane or anything else. If you checked out Citizen Kane because of this, would love to hear your thoughts. Sorry. Yeah. Hey, you don't need to. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. This is a perfectly good primer on Kane. You know, we were silly, but I think otherwise, like, this is a good kind of get you in the headspace for watching sort of an old movie. Um, get one of those TCM um, Blu-rays or DVDs or whatever when you get it, and you'll see all the, the making of and digging that holes. that Criterion for the, 4K release, baby. For those camera angles and whatnot. But even if you want to be digital about it, like, no, it's physical a, media is the future. That's true. Hey, I've seen you, Leave the World Behind. I was just about to say, if you've seen yes. Leave the World Behind, you know it's all about I've having... I've been the, prepping, baby. Yeah, Arthur's, I am the survivalist of <laughs> physical media. <laughs> Arthur's somebody I want on my team. Yeah. And it's, it is for the library, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, even if you want to go the digital route, this you can rent this movie for like $3 on YouTube, and the print is really good. Mm-hmm. So just go check it out. Do yourself a favor. For the record, I want you for love, not for... 
what you've got. I'm no, not. I'm, I'm, I'm not Charles Thank Foster you. caning you. Oh, I'm Charles Foster caning both of you. <laughs> I know you can pitch a tent and build a fire, and I know he's got all the movies. Uh, good trash cast at gmail.com for your thoughts on Kane and what your friends are good for in a survival situation. Uh, you can also <laughs> find other shows under the Good Trash Media banner all over the internet. You can check out the Wheel of Randy hosted by Dan Wade. You can check out the Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Uh, and you can support this show um, and everything we do at patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, go over there to find out what's in it for you. Uh, things like picking a movie for us to discuss on the show uh, or having us send you a Blu-ray um, based on your, your actor and genre preferences. All kinds of cool stuff. Patreon.com forward slash GTM once more for uh, more info on that. Uh, what else? Um, nothing worth promoting right now. We're good. Very good, very good. What are we watching next week, Arthur? Well, we continue the countdown, and next week we lose our bearings as we rush to the analysis table to discuss the second greatest film of all time, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's going to be a good time, guys. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time.